Let's have a word of prayer. We'll get started and continue our look at discovering your role in God's family, and particularly tonight, enlarging the family. So let's pray as we talk about that. Father, we do thank you that uh, your family is the family to be in. And it's not a family that we would choose. Uh, it is a family that has been chosen for us by your grace. And Lord, we admit that in the busyness of life, we forget how blessed we are to be in your family. And, and not just blessed, but we would find even greater joy if we were sharing that message of your grace to others who as well would be a part of that family. And so tonight, as we consider your word and consider about this issue of enlarging the family, that you're all about that. And in our busyness, we need to be all about that, but recognizing how we can be about that so that we can say, like, like Jesus said so long ago, that we are about our Father's business. So help us tonight uh, have strength to get through this hour, alertness, and also hearts that are responsive to your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. When a couple weeks back I said, as we're talking about discovering your role in God's family, God's family first few weeks was the church, but we're talking about participating. So, of course, when we talk about enlarging the family, what are we talking about? Evangelism. Okay. That's usually the word that comes to our mind. All right. We think of the word evangelism. Um, we say enlarging the family. So we're playing the word association game. If we say enlarging the family, evangelism. If we say evangelism, what naturally comes to your mind? Just whatever first thing that comes to your mind when you think of evangelism, what comes to your mind? Okay, witnessing. And I'm not looking for like theological big old answers. I'm just looking for whatever comes quick to your mind on evangelism. She said witnessing. The gospel. The gospel. Door to door. Door to door. All right. What else? The word outreach. Okay, outreach. Events. Events. It's become probably the latest buzz is outreach events. Put the two together. What else? Sharing the life. Okay, sharing the life. All right. We have so many ways of saying this and doing this. And, and one of the things that is, if if you, I'm assuming some of you did, hoping some of you did, read through some of this in our book this week, the one thing you'll notice that they didn't talk about, it, it was not only good about what they said, but it's good about what they didn't say in this chapter. And I'll get to what they didn't say in just a moment. So let's start with, first of all, this. Uh, take your book, turn to page 7.1. 6.1, I'm sorry. 6.1, if you're not already there. When we think of evangelism, often in our minds, the first thing that comes to our mind is a method or system. How many of you have ever been through a method or system of sharing the gospel? Okay? Probably if you tell the names. What's the name of the ones you've done? We're the best. Way of the Master. The Romans Road. The Romans Road. Bridge. The Bridge. Some of you remember Evangelism Explosion. Okay, been around for a long time. So, again, here's, here's the problem. It's a good and bad thing, but when we think enlarging the family, we think evangelism. When we think evangelism, too often we think a method or a strategy. Um, that's why I like what they've done in this chapter. Instead of just going after, all right, we're enlarging the family. Okay, evangelism. Evangelism, let's talk about ways to get that done. 
let's talk about methods. Let's talk about what's working with the latest thing that works. Going door to door, that worked for a while, but whatever worked about it, uh, the Mormon Je and Jehovah's Witnesses made sure that doesn't work anymore. And quite honestly, I mean, that kind of came out of the Kirby vacuum days and shoe sales and all that kind of stuff, but once you start sticking the don't come to my house with circulars, whatever, and even if you don't have that on your door, people don't want to be bothered. And think about it, when it comes to evangelism, and we're saying enlarging the family, it's relational. Door-to-door um, -door was never relational. And, I, and again, I'm saying that I did lots of door-to-door -door back in the day, so it's not like if you did door-to-door, -door, I'm bad-mouthing that. But it's not. We're, we are, for sake of a better way to put it, we're dropping little... Um, pin. Grenade. We're dropping, I don't know why that just went out of my head. I can think what it is. We're dropping little gospel grenades at people's door. Because a lot of times we're dropping, we walk away. And we hope it blows up and does something good in their life. But, I mean, I confess because I was a shy kid for so many years, how many times did we knock on the door and say, oh, good, they didn't answer the door. I can just stick the thing in the door and keep going. All right? And the fact that some of you smiled and did that, yes, you, you've been there, done that. But what, what we're trying to see tonight is. Often evangelism is, is thought of in terms of a method or strategy or system. And, and, and here's, how, here's how distorted it, it got. And this comes really out of the late 1950s. There was a book written called Soul Winning Made Easy, all right? Which, just think of the title. I mean, what, what sounds wrong about that title? All right? What sounds right about that title? All right? For one thing, as you heard me rant before about soul winning, I'm never one to say, I've never won a soul to Christ. I've offered the gospel at the end of the day, God brings the increase. But we're never going to go, it was made easy. But this book came out in the 1950s, late 1950s, and quite honestly, it affected so many churches and so many other books that spun out. I still remember I had a book in my file somewhere called Drawing the Net, um, and I got this book back in the early 80s. And basically a spin-off of this idea. But let me just give you a quick idea of the thinking and how it's poisoned our, our evangelism, our way of looking at it. Here's part of what he says in this book. I'm just going to read it through quickly. And here's, just catch what he says. It's incredible. He says, the trained soul winner can bring his prospect to a decision for Christ. There's no middle ground as he moves with surety and deafness right up to the point of salvation. It is his conversation control that makes this possible. He knows exactly what he's going to say each step of the way, and he can even anticipate his prospect's responses. He's able to keep the conversation focused on the main issue and prevent unrelated materials from being introduced. The controlled conversation technique is something new in evangelism and represents a real breakthrough in soul winning. You know, we look at that now, we go, do you realize that's exactly what cults do? I mean... You get a cult coming to your door, and they have been trained. Don't let them take you off the track. Don't let them start talking about Greek words if you're Mormon, and, you know, they start talking these things. Here's where you go back to. But, I mean, the controlled conversation technique, I mean, just think of that. Who is not in that picture? God's not in that picture, all right? Because here's where it goes. And here's another part about 40 pages later, 35 pages later. He goes on to say, this is how you seal the deal. I mean, really, it's a marketing deal. Lay your hand firmly on the subject's shoulder, and with a semi-commanding tone of voice, say to him, bow your head with me. Note, 
Do not look at him when you say this, but bow your head first. Out of the corner of your eye, you'll see him hesitate at first. Then as his resistance crumbles, his head will come down, your hand on his shoulder will feel the relaxation, and you will note his heart yields. Bowing your head first causes terrific psychological pressure. And, and you read this, and, and you know I, I can see with your mouth hanging open, you're going, you got to be kidding me. But honestly, that's a big part of what then poisoned a lot of our evangelism mindset in the 60s, 70s, early 80s. And, and there's still a lingering effect of that still today. Because there are still people who, even in good evangelism systems, there are things weaved in there that still has echoes of this in that. And that is that somehow, someway, if you do this system right, there will be results. And, and I have to say, I can't go there. I can't say that. If I do this way right, because that, that does not seem to square with Scripture, because at the end of the day, then I'm leaning on a system. I'm not leaning on the Spirit and the Word. Right? So I, I lay that out because that's where I, I'm thankful in this chapter that they did not go. They did not go with, here's a method, here's a system. At the heart of it, looking on page 6.1, at the top of that page it says, when we became Christians, we became new people with a new identity, new set of values and beliefs, new responsibilities, and a whole new way of living. And the whole point is this. The point of this new family is we are out there different than the rest of the world. And we ought to be different. Not Amish different, not strange different, but different in the sense of the things that they've alluded to. And that is we're new people with a new identity, a new set of values, and new responsibilities, most importantly, a new way of living. Now, here's another problem that came out in the 60s, 70s and still affects us today. Um, many of us grew up with, you don't have unsafe friends, all right? If you're going to be a good Christian, good Christian don't have unsafe friends because you're going to have the wrong kind of friends and they're going to take you down the wrong path and they're going to screw up your Christian life, okay? And I'm, again, I'm seeing either, either from the smirks or from the disgusted looks, some of you had that experience growing up. You know, it was one of those things. Now, is that, is there, in principle, is that true? In principle, is it true that the wrong kind of people can adversely affect my Christian life? Absolutely. I mean, we can, if we stop and took the time tonight, we could pull scriptures out and make a solid case for that, and we would be right. But obviously, what we are going to see in part tonight is Jesus knew that as well. And for that reason, in John 17, Jesus prayed very specifically to the Father. I don't pray that you take them out of the world. What does he pray? He says, I pray that you will keep them and protect them, and protect them from the evil one. All right? In other words, and this is going to be, you're going to hear this echo throughout this time we have together tonight, we are not to be isolated, we are to be insulated. All right? Insulation in a wall, which we did not have in China. So whenever we had cold winters, the concrete cinder block walls that were all part of our walls radiated really cold outside. And no vapor barrier, so it was damp cold coming in through the walls, all right? So there was no protection from that. Well, what he's praying for is, yeah, it would be nice. Let's just admit, it would be nice if the day I got saved, I'm in heaven, it's done. We're, we're done. And, and that could have been God's plan. And, and we don't even have time to develop why God doesn't do that, all right? 
there's a whole lot of reasons we could look at. But he has us, obviously, in the world, Ephesians 1 in part says, that we should be to the praise of his glory. Us being here with new lives, new focus, new responsibilities, new way of living, we are here to display that the Father and the Son are one, and now we, across the world, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of gender, regardless of slave or free, regardless of everything, we are one in Christ. So what makes us different? Well, that's why tonight we're going to look at uh, not the issue of how do we communicate the gospel in the sense of a system or method. The issue in large part is this issue of isolation. And that is, if we have this tension, all right, here's the tension over here. We need to be separate from the world. We, we cannot be um, affected by the world. Let's just go right to Romans 12. That we are to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. One of the more modern translations says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. All right? That is a problem. But over here, God says, but I, I have sent you out into the world. As you have sent me, Father, I send them. All right? So how do we solve this tension? Um, how, do we, how do we figure out that it's not a system and method that we can get all slick and work it out really well and have all the right answers so at the end of the day we go da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Do you want to pray the prayer? They say yes. All right, I got another notch in my belt. Move on to the next house, all right? Instead, we go back to there's something much more powerful than man's little nifty systems, and that's what we want to see tonight. So here's, here's the tension. Really, this is the tension questions under grasp of the issue there on page 6.1. As Christians, how are we to live godly lives in an ungodly culture? What is the church's role in our culture? How does God feel about our participating in secular activities? How can we raise our children to love God amidst an ungodly culture? What does it mean for us to be salt and light in the world? If you notice in grasping the issue, it said nothing about how do we systematically present the gospel because it's going back to this core issue. We are in the culture and that very last question, we are salt and light. We heard about this in the message probably six, seven weeks ago now. So it's saying something about our lives, how we are living, how we are acting, how we are responding is a much bigger part of the gospel venture with people than a system. Right, that's where we're trying to go. Now, sound bites down here, and it's warm in here, and I'm already seeing fading. The donuts have kicked off, and coffee's not working real well. All right, I understand. It's Wednesday. You come from work, and it's just what it is. All right, and it's warm in here. At least it's warm in here. All right. Here's here's the two tensions. If you look under sound bites, it says Christians are to be separate from the world, and all God's people say, Amen. Amen. All right. But then we go to the next one. Christians are to be involved in our culture to shine as lights in the darkness, and all God's people say. Amen. All right. How do we make that work? All right. That is that. That's the two polar opposites of it. As we're going to see tonight, one of them can lead way over here to a big problem. Another one can lead way over here to another big problem. Or further down, something that came out in the 1970s, the Moral Majority, down there, the last one third from the bottom says the church should be at the forefront of the political arena, protecting our religious rights and promoting godly values. And and again. There's a measure we would agree to that. But at the end of the day, is that our mission? Um, is that our primary mission? Um, there, there are, say you're thinking back to World War II. 
to win the war, there's a lot of battles and there's a lot of missions. All right? So the war ultimately, as we're looking at it, is for the souls of men and the glory of God. Now, to do that, a part of that may be this, protecting these things, because if we lose our rights, as countries have lost, then perhaps it becomes harder to share the gospel. All right? So here's where we're going to try to go tonight, and, I, and I'll just go over to page 6.2 for a moment. We've got this Hope Christian Church, this made-up Christian church. Um, if you read that, I, I want you to just catch five of these things that they say there. Um, and and it, this is the, this church has been around for a while. It's got some history. Um, we don't have as much history as they've had, but they've got 40 years of history. And with 40 years of history, you can easily slip into manage the church, manage the ministry, just go about the routines, and honestly, you can easily become very ingrown, and all of a sudden, when you become ingrown, everybody's got an idea of what we're supposed to be doing. Well, that's exactly what happens here. It says, this is what happens with the church. The larger paragraph there says, as American culture and political climate have become more anti-Christian, the church has become increasingly divided about how Christians should relate to others in our culture. All right? We must relate to others in our culture. And you know, let me just quickly hit that for just a second. Do Amish people relate to people in the culture? No, they don't. People spend money to go see them because they're an oddity. All right? People go there to find out. I mean, I still remember going there in Lancaster with my wife or part of that area and get on the cart with the Amish dude and he's got a cell phone and I'm like dude you just wrecked it for me what is up with that and, and here's the oddity of it I'm not kidding I'm like so I'm like how can you do that he goes well there's no wire attached and so you can't have a wire at your house you can have no wires going to your house because that's part of Amish thinking but he can plug that sucker in at the at the stand right there where the horse goes because that ain't my house so it's just like, that is just like freaky odd, you know. So it's just the way you beat the system. Well, we have to relate to our culture, but there's a measure where we're not going to relate to our culture. We can relate to our culture because parents have kids and we have kids. People have problems, we have problems. Some people have bad bosses, we got bad bosses. Some people have good bosses. We got mortgages, we got bills, we got health problems. We got a lot of common ground that we can work with with our culture. Then there's a whole bunch of other that's not. But here's where this church wrestles. It says, following that sentence, some believe, number one, that we should be politically active, defending our Christian values in government, all right? They're the one that the church activists out there, we're going to make up. We're going to make an impact for God in the community through activism. Number two, others believe that we should focus only on spreading the gospel and changing people from the inside out. Well, that sounds more biblical, maybe, all right? Number three, some people believe that all Christians should school their children at home to protect them from harmful ideas taught in public schools. All right, homeschool movement, that's part of it as well. All, right? all these things are spinning off. Others think that Christians should send their children to public school to learn what it means to be salt and light amidst a godless culture and to expose non-Christian children to the gospel. All right, there's the flip side of that coin. You go one side or the other. And, and I've heard people... This is a big word, pontificate, you know, stand on your soapbox and talk real big about, you know, the only way we're going to have a, a heritage that live for God is we put them in homeschool and we're going to protect them from the world. And the same people over here will say the same thing about putting them in a public school. They're going to cease to be a witness for God. All right, so obviously 
nobody has cornered the market on what's the right thing to do. Number five, then they said, some believe Christians should only view and hear Christian entertainment and media what others prefer, secular sources of information and entertainment. So obviously, these things are competing, and even in this room tonight, there are things that we have all brought to this room and are thinking, especially if we've been a believer for a while. Um, I'm looking around the room. I know, Jenny, you haven't been a believer for a long time. How many of you have been a believer for five years or less? Five years or less. Okay. Okay, I don't remember. I don't know if I forgot what year you became a believer. I was thinking it was you. Are like, you okay. trying to get me in the pigeonhole? Yeah, it's like, no, no. I, I couldn't remember. So, you know, all of us have a history of we've seen it done, and we've seen it done different ways, and we've seen some of these competing ideas within the church. All right? and, and the question is, how do we pull it all together? So, jumping ahead, where I, I didn't put this up here, I'm going to go all the way down to answering this question. Again, this is my stab at, here's what I think the issue is before we jump into the scriptures. Because I try to answer this question before we jump into the scriptures and the rest of the article. What's the central issue before us? Enlarging God's family, all right, that's the subject. Enlarging God's family is going to demand this. It's going to demand that we are insulated from the world, but not isolated. Also, while we brightly shine God's glory through word and deed. It doesn't talk about evangelism systems. It is saying that we cannot be isolated because we already threw those through the... Um, Call them the sound bites. The sound bites are already getting us to think both ways. Which one is it? But obviously, we're not to be isolated from the world, and there's supposed to be something about us because of new, 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 something different about our lives in the community. What is that difference? So, that being said, let's go over to page 6.3 to hit these scriptures. And we're not going to look at all of them, but I want to hit certain things from uh, some of these texts to draw out how we need to think and then we land over in this article the fact of isolation alright just pausing for a second because I can kick it into overdrive really quick and then just fly past and just keep going any comments or questions so far of, of your experience what you faced what you've learned, seen, done or even from things you read here it's like hey I hadn't thought of that yet any comments so far yes sir Wes I think the seeing that and being being uh, familiar with you know certain certain independent fundamental Baptist churches and certain groups in those circles is that is that I think what is produced a lot are plastic grapes. Yeah, that's a good way. He said produced a lot of plastic grapes. In other words, fruit that wasn't real. Yeah. And absolutely. I mean, I'll give you a, a classic illustration of this. Uh, and this is more of an evangelist saying this, which that's why we always jokingly say, evangelistically speaking, because the numbers seem to be... I, I remember this this guy that spoke at a church near Maryland, and he was talking about revival that they had at their church when he was a pastor before he became an evangelist. And he was speaking at this youth thing for us. And I'm not kidding. He said... And this was back when it was cool to say all the things that's going on in your church. We had somebody say every Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night for, what did he say? For three years. For three years. We had somebody say Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night for three years. So I'm thinking, all right, I'm not real good at math, but I can do quick math and go, all right, so that's like 100, about 150 a year, 450. So I'm like, so wow, that's incredible. You know, but I, obviously I'm already doing that yet, really. 
And, and so then I ask him, you know, just pull him aside later, unconnected, go, so how big was your church? About 130. And I'm going, you know what? Then then we've got a real problem here, you know. And obviously I'm not wasn't my place to say that, but I sure wanted to say that and a whole lot more. Because I knew as soon as he sang, it sounded very impressive to the audience and the, and the kids and whatever else, but I'm going, man, that just doesn't sound good. Because at the end of the day, it's look at this and look at this and look at this, rather than look at God, look at God, look at God. And looking at God may take long, slow, and not quick evangelism. And case in point is Jesus himself. Because if anybody, and I say this very carefully, very reverently, if anybody failed in the mission, by the world standards today, Jesus failed miserably. Um, okay, so there was 120 in the upper room, and that was a remnant of three years of ministry, and it, it didn't go well for a long time. And, and so we, we look at that and go, all right, then what are we supposed to do? So here's where these scriptures here tonight. First Peter chapter 2. Peter is writing to believers that are scattered, just like James wrote to them that are scattered. He says in verse 11 there, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits you. All right? He's already said you're aliens and strangers. And old people like some of us in this room, we think aliens, we think my favorite Martian, all right? Uh, now that I've been in China, I understand this alien. You know, it's like, this is not my country, all right? And, and this isn't our country. We are to be different, but the difference, he says, is, verse 12, we live such good lives in every way, integrity. I mean, there is nothing that, that just frustrates the daylights out of me more than, and this is just me here my soapbox for a second, is finding out that some of the people that are turned off from the gospel are turned off because they have Christians that work with them who have the worst work ethic in the office. And I go, ah, you got to understand. You might even go door to door, but you are killing it out there, you know. And, and that's really the, the sphere that God has put us. And that's the whole point. Peter is saying it. He's saying that they may see your good deeds and because of the lives that you live, that means... When everybody else is flaking out, going, hey, i got some free time, and I'm, I'm, I'm surfing the Internet, and I'm buying stuff on Amazon, and I'm checking my Facebook and everything else. No, you're the one going, hey, boss, I'm done with my work. What else can I help with? You know, I'm taking that next step because there's an integrity issue that's tied to the fact that truth is what the gospel is all about. So my life has to be truth. So here's what Peter is saying, and he goes on to say, Here's why, verse 15 in that section. For it is God's will that by doing good you would silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. All right? So that they go, hey, I got nothing to say. And, and, and our good character, instead of us, and this used to be part of the door to door thing, right? And I, I remember this well back in 1981, unfortunately. I can remember because I was a young punk still in college. And I was on this summer internship with some other guys. I can remember sometimes walking away from door to door, and the sense was I answered the questions right, and I kind of showed them that I was right and they were wrong, and I showed them what the Bible said. 
And I look back on that and I think, man, talk about evil way to think. All right? It's like, way to go. You, you nuked him in the, in the theological debate. But at the end of the day, is that what it was all about? No, it wasn't. It was about showing through my life and through what I say graciously through that so that the silence that it brings them to hopefully brings them to, in that silence, a recognition they need what I have. They need what they see. Um, that's the issue. Go on down a little bit further, and this is a well-known uh, text. We're going to skip John 15 for tonight, but Matthew 5, 13, and six, 13 to 16. Really, verse 16 has been said, and Peter echoed it there back in chapter, chapter 2, verse 12, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day he visits you. And I just say this about you are the light of the world. Again, the picture, and, and we can't... We can't envision this. I can, I can still envision because I had the opportunity 25 years ago to go to the Holy Land and other travels. And on the Sea of Galilee, up on the hill, we happened to be on a Sunday um, when we were on the side of the hill on the Sea of Galilee. And, you know, we can all guess maybe this is where he did the Sermon on the Mount. Nobody knows for sure, but we know where Capernaum used to be and all this kind of thing. But the whole thing is we think in terms of electrical lights. There was nothing of that. So at night, uh, there were itty-bitty little lights back in their day, 2,000 years ago, that were just barely a speck all around, dotting around the small Sea of Galilee. And I think of Sea of Galilee and the big storms, I think, and something big. It's like a big lake. I mean, Lake Michigan and all the Great Lakes are much bigger than the Sea of Galilee. All right, you can get to the other side pretty easily. I mean, Lake Michigan, you can't see the other side. But my point is this. He wasn't talking about bright lights, like me coming down 75 the other night and one of those, those things going back and forth, I think it was over at Southland or something. Um, he's not talking about that. He's talking about little bitty lights, and I go back to the work setting, our office setting or our factory or wherever we're working. It's those little bitty lights that we are that, that ought to be arresting the attention of the people around us so that then... We have a credibility, so that then we have a believability, so that then suddenly they go, all right, you just smacked your thumb really hard on that machine, and everybody else would have used a lot of words to colorfully describe how bad that hurt, and you didn't do that, and I've never heard you do that. Why? Now, again, a lot of people don't cuss. That's just one example. But that's what it ought to be. That's what he's trying to draw out here. Let's go over one more page here. John 17, this really is the heart of, John 17 really is the heart of uh, this, the idea of the article, the idea of what we're trying not to do, and that is be isolated. Jesus says, uh, I'm just going to skip down through part of this as he's praying, says, verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are insulated. They're not isolated. So when we think of monks, when we think of hermits, that was the whole idea was if I pull away, I can be more spiritual, I can be more devoted to God. But we look back through history and think of all the problems that have happened in monasteries because God never intended truth to be lived in isolation. Truth was never intended to be lived in isolation. But how can we be insulated while we're out there? That's what we have to wrestle with. Because Jesus goes on to say, they are not of the world, 
even as I am not of, of it, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. So keep them in the world, but the word sanctify is a word we get for holy. All right, Make them holy. And again, we often have thought of, and again, this comes out of the 60s, 70s, and all kinds of dumb times that we've thought, holiness is a list of do's and don'ts. All right, If you do this and do this and do this, or don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, you have hit the checklist, and you are in the category called holy. All right? When Jesus is saying that, in simple terms, from the Old Testament into the New Testament, sanctify or be holy as I am holy literally means to be set apart. All right? So this lamb that is holy to God has no moral character whatsoever. It's a lamb. It's, it's an animal. But it's set apart to God. So here's what he's saying. You're in the world, but you're set apart from the world. And that's the paradox. That's the tension that is being laid out in the mission that God has given us. But here's another tension. Go to 1 Corinthians 5. All right? We often read this text and we miss a key thing that's said here. He says, I've written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And we're like, yeah, right. We shouldn't hang with those kind of people. Those are just evil people. And you can think all kinds of evil things and evil things that are out there. Yes. But he says, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. He says, I'm not talking about the world. In case you missed my point, he says, this is what I'm saying. In case you have... In that case, you'd have to leave the world. But now I'm writing to you not that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother who is sexually immoral or greedy or idolater or slanderer or drunkard or swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. And it's like, well, what's the point? And again, that can sound like, and I go back to the Amish, I'm using them, sorry, Amish people. Um, you know, the, the Amish, if they somebody doesn't follow the system, what do they do? They shun them, all right? They're shunned, and then they come on, you know, all these different TV shows that have looked at Amish life and some that have been shunned finally just jump into the world, and that's that. Well, what they're talking about here is if somebody claims to be a child of God, but they're out there living like the world, don't associate with it. Because, quite frankly, I, I don't want that. I don't want, you know... <laughs> I've had situations, and probably you have too, where somebody is telling others at your work, I'm a believer, and you see how they act, how they respond, and what they do, and you want to go, please, don't tell people you're a believer. I mean, that sounds really cruel and unusual, but that's exactly what Paul is kind of getting at. And that is, if somebody claims to be a believer, but everything about how they're living is betraying their life and, and making them on the same plane as that, when Jesus said... I'm praying for all of us who will hear the gospel through the disciples. Because in John 17, he says, I don't just pray for these men. I pray for those that will hear the gospel because of these men. That's, that's us. And he says, I pray that you will protect them, but I also pray that you will set them apart while I've sent them into the world. And that is the, the holy tension that we face. All right? That being said, let's go over in our book... We got time. We got three minutes. Let's just give me your best shot at this. I don't, I don't even know if anybody did the homework. I always look at Carolyn. If I say, anybody do the homework, I look at Carolyn. She got a big grin. Yeah, she did it. I won't look at anybody else because everybody else will look down. All right? It's the guilty look. You know, if, if we're just going through these texts quickly, you know, 
we, we could, and it's not really in a question form, it says at the bottom of page 6.4, having read through the passages, list all the things we are to do in relation to our culture. So I know I read through them quickly, I jabbered a lot, um, so maybe you lost what was said in the text, I hope you didn't. But as we read through some of these scriptures, what are the things we are to do in relation to our culture? What does God expect us to do? Go ahead and just blurt them out. Submit to authority as unto the Lord. Okay, good. And she she hit one that I didn't finish reading all of that text there in First Peter. Very good. In other words, we ought to be some of the best citizens around, quite frankly. Good. Somebody else said something? Be different. Okay, be different. And, and think about that for a second, because I want you to pull that out for me a little bit more, all right? Be different. Develop a rapport with people. Okay, develop a rapport, all right? What kind of rapport? Well, I think on the job there, if you get to know people on the job uh, and have opportunity to talk with them, just start talking about things uh, in general to get to know them better, to develop trust. Okay, because you're wanting to get that, like you said, that was, I was looking for how you're connecting it. Trust, and that is care, concern, all right? Um, I'm the Christian, so I think i got to avoid these people, so I don't talk to them, but crying out loud, they're people, all right? got to connect. And if you think of anything more to develop different, just shout it out. Go ahead. I was saying along her lines of being different, it's, it's not so much that we have to be different, it's that we can't, um, it's, it's, a, it's hard to put like a, a right word on it, but I think of like uh, Psalm 1 where he talks about blessed is the man who does not walk, um, was it walk, sit and stand and sit, mm-hmm. is the word he puts it in. Right. And it, there's some sort of like really deep fellowship, for lack of a better word, that, that is had with the world, right? As opposed to just, oh, I don't wear that sweater because that Right. Right. And, you know, young people want to look like the world because there's a cool factor. You know, we're pretty much at the age where we're past the cool factor. Cool points don't mean anything, whatever. All right. But there is still a part of us, our sinful part, that we want to at least relate to people. And and we might fudge our Christian life even to do that. All right. Anything else you can think of about how we are to relate to our culture? Yeah. I like in the workplace you, know, you see people gossiping or you see them you know, not um, fulfilling their responsibility not to say anything to them but to live to do your your job right to avoid the gossip to avoid um, and to fulfill your responsibility and, and maybe to go a step further like um, in the scripture on Sunday about um, you know Turning, turning the cheek, you know, you hit, or you're forced to go a mile or two miles. Right. Your, your supervisor or manager wants you to do this, go the extra mile. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Because honestly, you're retired, right? Mm-hmm. Anybody else retired in here? All right. So, you are. Ken's retired, right? You two guys are just living life. Life is good. Yes, it is. Every day is a Saturday. Right? Every day is a dream. And it's a nightmare. All right? Here, here's, here's the reality for all of us, for the most part in this room, the vast majority of us. All right? We have three spheres of life. There's home, there's work, 
and, and, and I should say home, but let's make it home being our house with our family, all right, or whatever the case may be. But one of the spheres we have is our neighborhood, our neighbors, all right? Um, and I was thinking about this in terms of a message. I have a missions conference to go to coming up. And I was, I was struck with this day, and it kind of fleshed in with this tonight. And that is, all right, since I've come back from China, my one neighbor, Ed uh, Cuddy, who is on the one side, I, I know him well. He's given me some tools, some power tools. He even gave me the code to his garage. So anytime I need something, I go in there and get it. I'm like, man, you're a better neighbor than I am for crying out loud. But he's retired, he's got all the tools bought, and we're good friends, and he's happy because now, since he has a home and garden-looking lawn, now our yard will finally look better because we've had renters for the last eight years, and what renters do, they don't always make that yard look great. So there may have been a little motive to that. But my whole point is this. All right, I, I know Ed. I know Jerry across the street, who, quite frankly, had a huge drinking problem. So bad that years ago, there were a couple times when I had to help him later at night get in his front door because he could not find the handle to get in the front door. And I'd see it out the window, I'd have to go get the guy, help him get in his front door, and he'd get in his house and it was like a cave and it was like a dungeon in there, you know. And, and I come back and he's got the most beautiful yard and his house is nice now and he's sober. He's got this beautiful convertible Corvette. Um, you know, I've joked with them. It's like, you're keeping your baby clean. I mean, bring that thing about every other week, scrubbing it from top to bottom. I know that. Next door, we got a couple, Jesse and Amber, and Jesse's father, Daryl, three kids, Brogan, Caden, and, and, and Evan. Cute little boys out there playing. they got these little Irish names. But here's the problem. I know a lot of stuff about my neighbors. But, and this is just me fessing up, in the sphere of influence that God has put me, I know things about them so I can relate to them, but life gets busy, and it's easy to just go, hey, Jerry, hey, Ed, thanks for this, thanks for that, and I don't take the next step that gets me beyond just, I know stuff about you, and yes, occasionally I am remembering to pray for you, but I'm no better than the rest of your neighbors if that's all I'm doing. If all I'm doing is making my yard look good and I'm willing to come across and help unload this or help move this or see somebody struggling to get this out the door so I go help them or whatever, I'm like other neighbors because back in the day, everybody did that. That used to be the old way neighborhoods work. All right? But I've got to go, there's got to be another step. Um, and I say that just to throw, quite frankly, a guilt trip on us, starting with me. And that is, if we don't know our neighbors, number one, and, and we're almost at that point where we won't talk with our neighbors for months, all right? It's cold, and uh, come Sunday, and the time changes, and you're coming home from work, and it's dark, nobody talks to nobody, unless there's a big snowstorm that everybody's out talking for a day or so about, oh, that was crazy, my back's killing me, and everything else, all right? That's the only thing that brings us out. And so we have months of not connecting. But our world... As, as, as Carolyn was saying, our world, quite frankly, for most of us, is our neighborhood and our work. Our neighborhood and our work. And gone are the days of us reaching out to our neighbors, sadly to say. We will reach out to people, we'll pass out tracts and neighborhoods, we'll pass out flyers that come to stuff a community, but somehow we avoid those relationships, but those are the places that God has put us to be that little light at work, and, and we relate to them. So, we're trying to do that. But here's the tension. Go over to page 6.6, .6, please. 
Here's the issue that this writer brought up. I've already gone through all this. I don't know why I put this on PowerPoint because I never get to it. All right, the fact of isolation. Jim Peterson writes a really good article. And again, what I liked about this chapter, I've already said, so I'll just pick up it again. All right, and that is what I liked that they didn't say was if we're going to enlarge the family, here is the way to do it. All right, there is absolutely no talk whatsoever in this, this little issue here, the sixth issue of getting involved in God's family, no talk of a system. It is all talking about relationship, connection, and how are we living. So let's look at what he says here. On page 6.6, over on the far left side, light is meant for dark places. Here's what it says in that second sentence underneath here. There's just some things I'm I'm highlighting, and I'll kind of walk us through some decades here. It says, the idea that Christians are to be actively involved in the world creates tension for many of us. Apparently, this has been the case throughout his, the history of the church. The pendulum has swung back and forth, and here's, the, here's where it swung. It has swung back and forth between isolation, and I would say isolation, at least in my brief lifetime, I'm still young, my brief lifetime, 60s, 70s, early 80s, the pendulum was over here on isolation, all right? We don't have Christian friends. We don't connect with unsaved people because they will mess us up. You don't have neighbor kids that you you play with because they're going to teach you bad things. You're going to learn bad things. So we do all the Christian things and Christian families and Christian this and Christian that, right? Then, now the pendulum has swung over here. And this is, quite frankly, where we are today. And, And churches in large, and that is you go from isolation to compromise. And that is, you swing it way over here, all right, we want to relate to people, we want to connect with people, but we do that in a way that compromises Scripture, quite frankly. We do it in a way that sounds like it works. It's the old pragmatic thing, and that is, if it works, then we do it. Well, uh, yeah, the plastic grapes that Wes talked about, that comes out of a lot of compromise when it comes to reaching people, a lot of plastic fruit. So here's how he's going to try to help us think through this this tension of isolation. Down at the bottom of that, that same column, right at the very bottom, he says this. In that last paragraph that finishes that left column, he says, The process of isolation I've just described is so common today that few Christians have meaningful relationships with non-believers. It has been observed, catch this, that the average Christian has no non-Christian friends after he's been a believer for two years. All right? Now, you're like, well, show me the statistics. All right? Anybody can make statistics say a lot of things. I mean, just ask all the Gallup polls and every other poll out there. You can make it say anything. But we've seen that play out, right? Um, If you've been a believer, the longer you are a believer, and part of that is a necessary reality of your life changing. Because just like Peter would say, your friends are like, how come you're not going partying with us? I mean, that's a real big paraphrase of what Peter said. How come you're not out there doing the things you did? Well, because your life is different. You are set apart. You are much different than them. And by virtue of that, it's not simply that we pull away. A lot of times our friends pull away. Right? That's part of it. But that isn't, that isn't the ideal because if God pulled you out of that, you may be the best person to go back into that to reach them. 
Um, my brother-in-law, he grew up in the in the gangs of Philly back in the 70s. He was dealing drugs, was selling drugs, had long hair, now he has no hair. Um, he, he was a rough dude. His dad was a, a prison guard. Matter of fact, he ended up in county lockup, and they told him over and over prison, yeah, your son's in county lockup, and his brother was dealing drugs. It was a mess, all right? And when they got saved, uh, to be able to turn their lives around, they had to get out of Dodge, and they ended up moving from, from Philly to Chicago. I don't know how much Chicago was better, but there was a good pastor there that took him and another, his brother under their wings. But now today, years and years and years later, my brother-in-law and his brother have started some churches in the inner city of Philadelphia because they're dealing with some of the same people. They know guys that are so screwed up that they've known from when they're young, and many of their friends that are dead because of that. Well, we may lose those connections, but God has put me at 15217 Arlington for a reason, me and my family. And it wasn't just because that was the house that was available back in 2003. It was because there are people that God has for us to influence with the gospel and to get to know and in getting to know them so that God may give us opportunities to first show our faith and hopefully tell our faith of what Christ has done. But that is the tension. Over time, even even people who came out of rough backgrounds, came out of things, eventually because of the change in our life, a lot of those friends scatter anyhow. How do we stay connected? So, that's part of the tension. And in, in, in the far right column, we were just reading that. In the next paragraph, it's talking about an article that he quotes from the Wall Street Journal. And this this divinity professor at the University of Chicago, which I didn't know they could have divinity professors at the University of Chicago, but yes, 1980. He said this. He describes isolation as this way. If you're part of the evangelical subculture, it's your whole life. You go to church, you buy the religious books, you watch the television programs, but if you're not part of the subculture, you never know it exists. Now, I don't know what that's like, because I grew up with that subculture. I grew up going to church, and church this and church that, and everything, everything possible church, all right? I didn't grow up with that, but some people didn't grow up with that, and when they come, they're like, well, I had no idea this is going on. I thought there were just a lot of fruits out there and strange people out there, but I didn't realize there were people that live like this that don't end up out in Waco, Texas or something like that, that these are real people that are really different, but different in a good way, all right? Now, from there, go over to 6.7, 6.7, and I'm just kind of teasing out some of the stuff he's saying and then look for some responses from you. Yeah, let's skip this because time is short. Let me just go to a couple things I really want to hit before we before we wrap up tonight. Let's go over to page 6.8. All right. Here's a big part of what I want to leave us thinking because this he raises in the middle of this article one of the biggest questions we wrestle with. If you've got little kids or you've got older kids or you don't have any kids, even yourself, how do we do this? Here's the question that's brought up. On that second little bitty paragraph, you look at the top, there's dot, 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 next paragraph, and then one little bitty one after that. It says, all things considered, the prudent thing to do seems to be to retreat to a safe distance. The question is, what constitutes a safe distance? Um, Everybody's got their ideas. And we could ask, okay, what does that mean? Okay, 
we don't go into McNally's bar to share the gospel, but maybe we'll hand them tracks on the way out the bar, all right? What does that mean? What, how does that look like? Uh, and, and because we can't go and give a thousand illustrations because there could be 1,500 ways we live, and we're going to miss some. So there's got to be something in principle we're going to look at. So it goes on to say in the next paragraph or second paragraph after that, is this what we mean by a safe distance, to think that it's Christian virtue to have no friendship with unbelievers? Well, obviously it can't be that because Jesus prayed. I've sent them. They're supposed to be there. So the safe distance can't be like what we did in the 60s and 70s. So at the bottom of 6.8, that last paragraph on the left side, it says, so what is a safe distance? He's already asked this. If you read that column, he's hit that like three times. At the bottom of the page, I think he gives a really, really good answer. Here's what he says, the last sentence, last full sentence of that paragraph. Fundamentally, sanctification is not a matter of geography, where we are, but of the heart, who owns it. And he goes on to say, a safe distance is maintained as we are constantly transformed by the renewing of our minds through the truth of God's word. In other words, a safe distance doesn't mean we don't connect with people that we don't relate to people, that we don't go bowling with our neighbor. If our neighbor invites us to go bowling, we're like, no, you're an unbeliever, I can't bowl with you because you might drink. Yeah, he might drink. He might get drunk for crying out loud. But that's what an unsafe person does. That's what i got to come to expect. It's the old adage, you can't catch a fish, you can't clean a fish before you catch it. We tried in the 60s and 70s to clean up fish and say, all right, you know, if you dress like us, then we're going to let you come through the door and once you start looking like us, then you'll probably become like us. And boy, we were stupid. Uh, let's just admit, looking back on it. But the, the reality is, yeah, unsaved people are going to do what unsaved people do. And if we have a problem with that, then we'll never connect with them. We're going to have to accept that. That doesn't mean we like that. It's who they are. Yes? So, Dave, I, I have a question. Sure. I work with these with people all the time. I consider them friends. I don't necessarily associate with them after work. Mm-hmm. But there are times when you know, everybody wants to get together and go to a bar that's down the street. Mm-hmm. I don't like going to a bar right. with them. But they're friends. Do I still go? Or do I not go? How, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's a good question because, you know, what, what is our gut reaction to that question? Our gut reaction is what? No. Our gut reaction is no, right? Our gut reaction immediately is no. But that is the better reaction, and that is it depends, all right? There's a lot of things it can depend on. Part of it it can depend on, have I ever had a problem with alcohol in the past? Then obviously I'm not going there, all right? Um, also, it depends on, how, how, from your interaction with them, how might they view that is you might buy a Diet Coke or a ginger ale or whatever, but are they going to be like, yeah, she hangs out at the bar with us too, and that's what they're going to tell. It's like C.H. Spurgeon, he used to smoke stogies back in the day, all right? And, you know, back in the day, they didn't know that it would take your life and all that kind of stuff because they didn't have the Surgeon General back then. But when people start advertising, this is the cigar that C.H. Spurgeon smokes, he says, I'm not smoking anymore. I don't want to be known for that, 
you know. So even that can play into, yeah, she's the Christian that will hang with us at the bar. So there's so many different factors. Do I inherently think that building is sinful any more than I think that this building is holy? No. But, obviously, with those associations, there's going to be some tensions you're going to have to wrestle through. Um, and I would say that. Multiple I'm not comfortable with doing that. Yeah. I, would, I would prefer not to do it. Right. No one, I don't like it with dark. Right. And it's just the whole atmosphere. I would prefer not to be a part of it. Right. And I think that that would be more of a witness than going and joining them. Right, exactly. And, and probably the, the most tenuous one for most people is, would my conscience let me do it? Most people, they couldn't. And for me to go against my conscience is sin. Even if I can't pin it on a scripture verse, verse and text, I'm going to have to say, for me to go against my conscience, even if it's, even if it's well intended, uh, uh, I can't do that. So that's part of the tension. Yeah, and, and and this is really what we're hitting at. I mean, this is this is where I, I knew we wouldn't get through everything tonight. I really wanted to make sure before we walked out the door tonight, we hit this question of what is a safe distance because this is where I just threw up here tonight. Remember, got the finger there with the string tied on. The question is, what is a safe distance with unbelievers? It's not measured in terms of specific places or locations. That can be a part of it. But like Troy said, it depends. Maybe, perhaps, um, not as a regular habit because it's going to be hard for people to think that, yeah, you're only drinking coconut wrap. Yeah, you can get Coke at the gas station. You know, you can get a, you can get a cheaper product at the gas station too because you have to tip the people in the bar probably, all right? So they're going to think, yeah, right. But here's, here's the answer that they've laid out that really is us remembering the safe distance has nothing to do with geographical relationship with people has everything to do with my being changed by the word and living out that change with people, whether it's at the bowling alley, uh, whether that's going with them down to you know, you go down to Greektown or go down to downtown Detroit for some whatever festival down there you do it to be with them as long as it's not going to violate a clear principle of scripture or violate my conscience I might not be able to pin it to a particular scripture, but my conscience may have a hard time walking in that place going, yeah, this is a seedy joint, and I want to relate with my coworkers, and they hang together, and I can spend some quality time with them, but at what cost to my conscience, which if I go against my conscience, it can be sin. And in it, it really, according to Romans 14, it is sin when I go against my conscience, even if my conscience is, is ill-taught, has not been taught correctly. So... All this being said, wow, 10 seconds, yay. All this being, all this being said is, if, if I can just tease out what I said earlier, and thinking this through today, and thinking it through in light of a message coming up, I found myself going, in the short time I've been back, I know a lot of things about my neighbors. But I've let the busyness of life, I've let them go in and go out, hey, how you doing? I've let that become a sad excuse for not taking it to another level, not taking it to another point. And I say, well, the point isn't to go home and have a guilt trip. The point is to go home and say, hey, before the snow flies, when you see your neighbors, if you don't know their name, I tell you right now, and I've probably already said this before, if we don't know their name, I can guarantee we're not praying for them. 
and we're not praying for opportunities to share the gospel. So start with, hey, before the snow flies and you're taking your trash out or you're bringing your trash can up or you're seeing them or whatever, before the time changes and it's dark as a dungeon at 5 o'clock, all right, say, hey, you know, I haven't met you or I've seen you a bunch of times. What's your name? Uh, just nice to see you. I see you, blah, blah, blah. Whatever. Start with that. Second, go to prayer. And then third, say, God, in prayer, give me opportunities. It may be something at Christmas coming up that we do. It may be something in the future that we do. It may be you see or hear something bad that happens to them that God gives you a huge springboard to reach out to them, to, to, to share the gospel through just loving them as what used to be a good name, what used to be a part of their culture. Our culture has twisted. I mean, they even say that architecture today is made in such a way that people don't connect. You don't have big front porches. Instead, you have connected garages. So people come in, close their door, go in their house, and in the morning they come out and they never interact with their neighbors. Our culture has changed, but the truth hasn't. We want to find a way to connect with that culture, with the truth, without being tainted by the culture, and yet being liked by the culture. That's Father, again, we do thank you that in, in your word, it tells us that Jesus prayed for us. We thank you for that. We are sitting here or standing here tonight saved by your grace because he interceded for us. And as the writer of Hebrews says, he continues to intercede for us. It is because of his shed blood, because of his sacrifice, his substitution for us that we can wonderfully relate to you. We don't have to sheepishly come to you. We can always come to you with confidence because of Christ. And yet, Father, in that confidence and in that surety of the future, help us to not look simply to the future and to our good life, but look to the dark world around us that we are intended to be light and help us to seek and seize and pray for opportunities to to be light at work, to be light with our neighbors or wherever you put us for your glory, we pray in Christ's name.